This will be a less spectacular sermon on the morning where I managed to kick over the water and spill it everywhere. So if I do have to turn around and get a drink of water, you understand why. Um, This is one of those absolutely pointless little sermons, isn't it, on these silly little letters that amount to nothing in the New Testament. You read them and they're over and, you know, why are they there anyway? Um, Well, I hope that by the end of the sermon, it's very obvious why they're there. But books like Philemon, 3 John, 2 John and Jude are our our smallest epistles in the New Testament and uh, occasionally where I fill in a gap, that's the series I'm going to be doing this year if it extends that far and I'll continue it next year if it continues on. Um, And they're rarely preached on and therefore are worth pondering at least once in our lives as Christians. And why this text is so important is that it helps us to see what a healthy church is. That's the reason why the actual text is left, I believe, in the Bible. Having said that, I'm going to start off with the small poem that you have at the beginning of the sermon outline. There's an outline amongst your materials there. And, of course, you'll recognise the art style. It's Michael Lunig. Well known, he does those funny little goggle-eyed people. And uh, you can see them all there, cut off from each other, uh, in their boxes, not communicating at all, separated, and here goes the poem. There are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. It is absolutely brilliant in its simplicity and what he is saying is that we are either driven by love as people or driven by fear. Fear of loss of reputation, fear of loss of money, fear of what society will think of us, fear about our past, fear about the future, and so on. It's interesting, however, that John has already said in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It raises the question about how we operate in a church and the kind of community that we have. What kind of motives are we driven by? And what does our church actually look like in its relationships? In a book whose name I've forgotten, in an author I have also forgotten, about which it was I have also forgotten, There was this great quote. So uh, he'll come back and sue me, I'm sure, or she'll come back and sue me in about 10 years' time, I'm sure. But it says this. The neighbourhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit 
that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've really had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality and our churches too often miss it. As you know, I'm responsible for uh, mission in the church. Um, it's a conveniership or a, a role. I don't know what it is. Stu, I'm sorry. I should... A coordinator. There we are. Uh, I've got an official title. That's great. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's a role that I love. But there's a question that goes before mission, isn't there, at one level. And here it is. What kind of church are we going to bring people into? Great, let's reach out and bring people in. But what kind of church are we going to bring people into? Our passage, we will see, helps us to see the church at its glorious best and at its dismal worst. And by the way, the New Testament epistles are very clear in this regard. That the church is a beautiful, wonderful creation of God. And yet, because of the sin indwelling it, it can be a very disappointing institution at the same time. Read through the uh, epistles of the Corinthians if you want further proof of that. But we'll see that this is the case with our little text here today. And the New Testament reminds us again and again of the brokenness of people in the church. And as I said, the scriptures are totally realistic in this regard. But at the same time, The New Testament underscores the glorious beauty of Christ that resides in his people through his word and through his spirit and indwelling love that bonds us all together and how God through that process picks up the broken pieces of people's lives and restores his image in them once again. So having heard in our annual church meeting, uh, those of us who just had it before this, We must not be discouraged by difficulties or times of hardship, times of sinfulness, even decline in the church. These two will pass by God's grace and therefore that's especially important to remember in our difficult times. We have to be patient and wait on God, yes, but what do we do in the meantime? That's the question. And the answer is what we have to do is to live as a body of Christ in the pattern that Christ 
has set forth for us. What's that pattern? Well, what's lovely about our passage here in this funny little epistle is that we have four beautiful examples. Three of them entirely positive. There's the example of Elder John, snapshot one, verses one to four. Snapshot two, there's the picture of Gaius, verses three and five and seven. And there's snapshot four, Demetrius, verse 12. They are great examples of what it is to be the kind of person who's not driven by fear, but by love. However, Diotrephes is a different kettle of fish entirely. He is a negative example, verses 9 to 10, and one we're to avoid. Okay, what I'm going to do now is to work through each of the the examples. So uh, if you have your scriptures open there at 3 John, the first snapshot revolves around Elder John. Notice how it starts. The elder. Well, that's a very brief introduction. Well, by the elder, what's meant is that he's the teaching elder, he's the one who does the teaching, and he's the ruling elder, i.e. the one who does the pastoring in the church. And John, as we know from the rest of the New Testament, was one of the 12 original disciples. In fact, he was the one that rested against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He would write the Gospel of John, he would write three epistles, of which this is the third, um, the second briefest of his epistles, and he would write the book of Revelation. Church tradition tells us that he ministered at Asia Minor, at the city of Ephesus, and again, according to church tradition, he opposed a very famous heretic in the city called Corinthus. And this guy, Corinthus, was the forerunner of a group called the Gnostics who would really start to flourish in the second century AD. And they were the guys who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And uh, in fact, you get good, good f- uh, examples of that starting to be taken up in John's teaching in 1 John and also in the second epistle of John as well, where he's starting to address that heresy. So this guy, who just simply identifies himself as the elder, is one of the major players in early Christianity. In fact, he's probably the most significant figure next to St Paul in terms of writings in the New Testament. But more importantly... Notice his pastoral affection. He says to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So this guy's not only emotionally cold fish. He doesn't have the stiff upper upper lip. He doesn't hide behind his authority. No, he expresses his, his affection publicly. Don't forget that all the letters that are written in the New Testament are read out aloud to the assembled congregation. So here is John revealing his great affection for Gaius. But notice what he says. He says, whom I love in the truth. Isn't that interesting? 
he qualifies it. It's not just the fact that he loves them, but that he loves them in the truth. You see, love is always grounded in the truth. Remember what does Paul say in uh, 1 Corinthians 13.6? Love rejoices in the truth. So love is not a wishy-washy emotion. Certainly emotions are attached to it. But it's grounded in the truth of the gospel, in the reality of how God has made his universe, in the reality of what relationships are like, and in the reality of how he's in the process of repairing them. But more than just being affectionate, he's also practical. You'll notice in verse 2, he prays for his um, friend Gaius. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and all may go well with you. Now, this is seemingly a prosperity theology, isn't it? Um, uh, Obviously, uh, Gaius is wanting an Audi, and here's John praying that he'll get an Audi. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think we have to take seriously that God is a generous God and a good God who showers us with his blessings, and we should be praying that as far as our general needs that God should bless us, and as far as the people we encounter, that God should bless them as well. That prayer for the general well-being of others is important, but it's not the whole story. Notice his focus is holistic. While the general welfare of people is important, he's also concerned that your soul, second part of the verse is getting along well. So he's praying insightfully for the actual growth of this man in Christ and that he will flourish spiritually. So practical, pastoral and also joyful. Verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says there. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, to be honest, if it was me, I'd be expecting people to come up to me and say, hey, look, uh, uh, Brother John, um, gee, that was a great gospel you wrote lately. Thanks, mate. Oh, those those epistles you write, they're just fabulous. Where do you get those great ideas from? And that wild apocalyptic sort of piece of writing at the end of the the canon. Oh, man, that's great. And gee, do you preach up a storm. You're a great guy. That would make me feel really joyful. But that's just sinful Jim Harrison speaking here, isn't it? Because John doesn't care one bit about his reputation. What he is concerned about and what gives him joy are other people. He's other-centred. His focus is not on himself. 
his own achievements, his own ministry, his own this or that, that's irrelevant. What he's interested in is in the growth of others and that gives, them, gives him great joy. And what he does is that he works to make himself redundant as a minister, to prepare people in their walk with God so that they can grow up as adults and get on with their work and faith in Christ by themselves without his help. He rejoices that they are flourishing independently of him. Okay, let's just do some practical thinking here. Uh, How do we pastor each other in the church? Well, we've learnt in truth and in love. We speak the truth to each other with sensitivity, with the desire to build up, not pull down. In other words, with a discerning and encouraging love. We've seen that we have a holistic concern for people, not just their general well-being, but their spiritual well-being. We've seen another centeredness, which paradoxically results in joy. You know, when I'm functioning at my best, I would have a conversation with people in this church where I just listen. They show no interest in me. They tell me all about themselves, what's happening in their life, yada, 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 yada. I'm listening there with my mouth shut, just paying attention to them. And when I'm functioning at my best, I'm not kidding here, that gives me enormous joy. When I'm functioning at my worst, I say, but they didn't ask me about myself. My other centeredness creeps in and spoils joy. Other centeredness that results in joy. So aim to make yourself redundant in ministry, equip others, and let God do the rest as they walk, grow, and minister in the faith themselves. Now, these are trite observations, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't want to pretend with you here. Because as glorious as the church is, it is also a sinful institution inhabited by broken and selfish human beings. The reality is is that sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we act selfishly and thoughtlessly. Tragically, we can exploit and abusively damage those in our care. We've just seen that, haven't we, in the uh, appalling commission on sexual abuse of children in institutional care and the church's grievous role in that. We can be boastful, we can be proud, we can exclude others, we can overlook others because they're not important. Leaders can burn themselves out so badly in ministry that they leave the church. Some even abandon their faith. Some people, profoundly hurt and broken by the church, 
withdraw from it entirely. I was just recently talking to an academic friend of mine. He's a, a Catholic, and I had a long conversation with him. I just thought I'd ask at the end, you know, how's your, how's your local congregation going at the moment? I, I knew that he goes to church every Sunday with his children. And he said to me, because of what has happened in the Catholic Church, I cannot return to it. It's over. I cannot go back. I said, well, what about your wife and children? They're continuing to go. What are you going to do? He has no idea at the moment. He's been hurt and broken by the church and is withdrawn from it entirely because of its corrupt leadership. The kind of leadership that we read about in Ezekiel that feeds on its flock. So what's the solution to terminal burnout, to deep hurt that's perpetrated by the church or brought about by ourselves and not ministering in wise ways? Well, I guess we have to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus is a pattern where he plunges himself into ministry, withdraws at times, separates himself from his disciples, prays, re-engages with God, sometimes seeks fellowship with them, sometimes it just avoids the crowds and goes to a lonely place to recuperate, re-engage with God and then begin ministry again. So sometimes we do have to withdraw for a while and do that. Sometimes we have to help, uh, seek the help of a Christian counsellor who helps us come to grips with deep pain, blockages from the past that we don't understand or can't overcome. Early on, I had to come to grips with the issue of anger and get counselling for that because I remember one day driving from Macquarie University where I was doing my PhD at the time and drove all the way down to um, Lewisham, thank you, in my car, mulling over the person I hated and realised that that entire trip, if you ask me what did I see, what other cars did I see, what people did I see on the road, where did I stop at a red light, I could not have told you one thing, anger had totally consumed me and I then had to start to deal with it. But what I want to say to you is that paradoxically healing comes with re-engagement with the institution that's hurt you. Isn't that strange? It means that we might have to go to a different church like my friend or to a different expression of church, perhaps a house church expression, or something else, but we have to re-engage with the body of Christ once again because it's in the body of Christ where his spirit dwells, where everyone is gifted in different ways, where the love of Christ dwells in all its power, that is where healing is ultimately found. And one of my friends has gone through enormous trauma in his life 
has found exactly that. That's where Herling has resided for himself. So what a fabulous snapshot that one is. A very big one, but boy, marvellous stuff. The second snapshot is Gaius. Don't know anything about Gaius. Presumably he's a leader of a church uh, at uh, Ephesus or perhaps uh, outside of Ephesus or perhaps elsewhere. We're not quite sure where John is at this time and to whom he's writing and what's the relationship geographically. Doesn't matter. Uh, He's obviously a pastor of some kind. And the first thing we notice about him that's said is that he is faithful to the truth. Notice in verse 3a, this is what's said. Uh, I I pray that you may enjoy good health, etc., and and that your soul is getting on well. So so there it is. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come along and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. So it's another lovely description. He is faithful to the gospel, and whether it's hard times or easy times, his life is always continually moulded by the truth of the gospel. It's never deflected from it. That's what shapes him. The second thing we learn about him is just his hospitality to visiting missionaries. Notice 5a, 6a and verse 8. I'll read them, read them out to you. Um, there it says, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. So who are these brothers that are strangers to him? And, and what's he doing that shows his faithfulness to God towards them? Well, it's sort of unpacked as it's explained more. They have told the church about your love. So obviously he's been very loving towards them. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. We'll come back to that verse in a little while. Notice in verse 7, it was for the sake of the name that they went out, so that's the name of the Lord Jesus, that they went out, receiving no help from pagans. Ah, these guys are visiting missionaries. There it is. There's their identification. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. So this is what Gaius has done. Visiting missionaries have come to the church. He has uh, not been a stranger to them but a welcoming, loving brother. They have no financial support at all and he of course has shown them hospitality and he has also given them money to send them on their way. That's what that little phrase means. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And hospitality was absolutely critical to visiting missionaries, as it is indeed in our era as well. Why is that? The answer is that ancient inns were expensive, their service was absolutely terrible, And worse than that, they were also full of immorality. Notice also that we have the important command of Jesus that a labourer deserves his pay, Luke 10.7. So he obeys what Jesus says about supporting Christian brothers who are working 
on behalf of Christ for free, dependent upon the care of their Christian brothers. So there it is, another very interesting portrait of Gaius. But we've left out one thing. Why does he do this? Is he concerned for himself? No. Is he concerned for the brothers? Yes. But is that what ultimately drives him? No. Isn't that surprising? What drives him? You'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That's his motive. Because in the way that Christ welcomes us on the cross as strangers, indeed as enemies, and on the cross pours out all his generosity in his forgiveness, that's what Gaius is like in welcoming these outsiders, these strangers, these workers on God's behalf, pouring out on them all his generosity so that God's generosity will be seen for the wonderful, worthy, miraculous thing that it is. It's all about the honouring of God in thanks to what he has received from him. Well, let's be practical again. How do we love each other in the church? Well, I want to say some nice things about this particular church here. The importance of hospitality. We do this very well in our church, can I say. Privately, in our homes and in our suppers that we have. By the way, in terms of hospitality, it just has to be tasty and nice. That's all that's required of the food. It does not have to be my kitchen rules or master chef. Because what matters in the meal is less the meal itself than the caring atmosphere where people can reveal their unguarded selves in the company. That's what matters where in that context they can say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. But in this context of hospitality, I start to feel that there's hope and I'm valued and there's a new beginning. I realise, of course, that not everyone can offer hospitality because of various reasons to do with their homes or their business. But you can certainly take a person to a cafe and offer to, you know, buy their meal for them, catch up, just a different form. And once again, the importance of our generosity to our missionary brothers and sisters in Christ, our link missionaries, uh, Wayne So and so on. We ought to be keeping them in our minds and thinking how we can help them, not only prayerfully, but financially. So two terrific portraits here so far. The third snapshot is not the good one at all. Snapshot number three, Diotrephes. What's wrong with him, I wonder? Well, this is what it says. 
I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, there's the problem, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing. What's he doing? Gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. So the visiting missionaries, you're not coming into my house, church. He also stops those who want to do so. Uh, Diotrephes, what's wrong with these guys? Uh, you know, we're part of your house church. We reckon they'd be great. You're out. You are no longer part of my house church either. And the rest of you, listen up and shut up. Okay? Don't forget, who's important? Me, 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 me. Diotrephes. So he loves to be first. He's exclusivist. He undermines the reputations of the ministry and of John by his malicious gossip. He refuses to allow the brothers in. He excommunicates their supporters and he places his rule and agenda on the part of the remaining members. Now, why does he do this? We don't know. Here are two suggestions. Maybe it's doctrinal. Maybe he's a liberal and he just doesn't like those evangelical guys with their sort of, you know, you know, you know, short haircuts and uh, American-sounding gospel. Maybe he's so strict that he thinks these guys are actually wrong on the gospel because they are one degree off centre on one pathetic little irrelevant doctrinal point and he won't let them in. They're liberals. Maybe it's just behavioural. He just doesn't want people on his turf interfering with his control over his house church. But whatever it is, that's the kind of person we are not to imitate. So let's just think about this in a practical way once again. Test yourself. Here's three tests. And each is based around the desire to be first. Here's my first question. Do you feel secretly superior to others? Notice the important word, secretly. No one realises this. You're the picture of graciousness and kindness to everyone. Wouldn't swat a fly. But secretly within, you, in the end, feel superior to some of these jerks. You're just more important. Perhaps you're more gifted. Well, who's the most important person in the church apart from God and Christ and the Holy Spirit? Paul says that the most important person in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 22, is the least important, the least gifted, the one who is dishonoured. They are the one who is to be honoured above all. It's the total reversal of what our society does that totally celebrates the celebrity circuit and the powerful and the bold and the beautiful. Here's my second question. Are you always secretly craving others' recognition? I bet you you don't think that about humble Jim in front of you. But that's my sin. 
amongst many. I always want to be a better scholar, to have my book recognised by more people, more invitations overseas, more nice things said to me by this peer group or that peer group, to be higher on the rung of scholars rather than in the middling or the lower levels. That's what I want. Well, what should we be doing? Seek the recognition of God. It's the only recognition that matters. Honour others ahead of yourselves. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, 16. Third and last question here. Are you wanting to impose your agenda on others rather than accepting them as they are? I think we're all like that, don't we? We like to manipulate people to get them to do what we want them to do, to manipulate their opinions of us so that they conform with our opinions of us or on particular topics. What does Paul says? Romans 5, 7. Accept each other as Christ has accepted us. Okay, so there's the example that we are to avoid like the plague. So two good examples, one bad example. The last one is another beautiful example of what Christ-likeness means. And all we learn about him is Demetrius, about Demetrius. He's found in verse 12. Here it is. We're moving quickly. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. So what's so impressive about his reputation? Three things. His church speaks well of him. The Apostle John and his ministry retinue speaks well of them. That's not bad. Two good CVs so far. But what's the real CV that matters? The real CV that matters as far as reputation is that when you look at this guy's life, it's not because John says it. It's not because his church says he's a nice guy. It's because when you look at his life, the truth testifies that he is a mature, Christ-like person who is transformed in Christ and being continually transformed in Christ. So there's a lesson for us. Reputation is a highly fragile thing. And I'm going to leave, leave with two examples one negative, one positive. When we grew up in uh, our youth work in our early 20s, there was an outstanding guy that we worked with who went on and became a minister. And his star shot up very quickly. Went to theological college, got his training, and within a matter of a very few years... He was one of the great convention speakers in Australia. Very well known. Deeply appreciated. He was also the head of one of the most important ministries 
in New South Wales. Young guy. And you know where this story is going, don't you? Because inevitably he was caught with his pants down with his secretary. And when he was interviewed by his eldership, our friend said to them, can't you just forgive me? Can't you just forgive me? And the other said, certainly. We forgive you and we do forgive you. But you have done irreparable damage to your family life, your wife and your children. You have done irreparable damage to our church and you have destroyed your personal reputation. You cannot be trusted anymore. And to his credit, our friend took that on, resigned, never went back into the ministry, has adopted another uh, job which he works at faithfully, is reconciled with his wife and family and lives as a faithful husband and father now. Here's a very positive example. Donald Campbell was a Presbyterian minister of Inverell. He'd been the minister there for uh, 30 years. And he came down to uh, Layla Park, where I was uh, attending at that time, and we were running a mission. And we were going to knock uh, door knock uh, houses and just tell people about the mission, hand out forms and so on. So here I was visiting with this great and grand old man. And he, it was his 30th year, he was going to go back and uh, uh, do uh, some more years of uh, ministry at Inverell, but, but uh, I believe, I think this was his uh, long service leave or whatever Presbyterian ministers have, I don't know. Um, and uh, he was just telling me that before he came, on the very week before he arrived at Layla Park, he was pulling out of the main street of Inverell and he smacked into the car beside him. He got out and there was a very small bump, very small bump on uh, his car. No one had seen it happen. And he said, the great desire came over me to just to drive off. There was no one around. No one had seen it. I didn't know who owned the car. What can I do? He said the temptation was just to move off and leave the issue alone. But he didn't. He waited there the three hours that it took for the person to come back to the car and they exchanged their details and did the normal things you did in that context. Because he realised... That first of all, even if no one else did see him, someone else did, and it was gone. And more importantly, he realised that if someone had seen him, his 30 years of faithful gospel ministry in that town might be destroyed by that one action. So be on guard. A godly reputation is a precious jewel. Do not lose it. So here it is, this useless unimportant little letter stuck at the back of the New Testament. Who needs it? We desperately do. We need to be like the church that is described here and to avoid being like 
Diotrephes, who never learnt the lesson of becoming last in service of Christ. Amen.